Hi friends, welcome to The Trauma Tapes. I'm Dr. MC McDonald, and this is a podcast about unbearably emotional experiences and how to cope with the traces they leave on our lives. I'm a PhD trauma researcher and life coach, and it's my goal in life to change the way that we define, understand, and treat trauma. Trauma is not actually a sign of weakness or disorder. It's a biological response born of strength and the will to survive. I'm here with my sister, Elizabeth Meadows. Each week, we read your letters and give you information and advice about how to understand and demystify your experiences and symptoms so that you can heal. We bring together my background and research with our own lived experiences of trauma to help you and our listeners better understand and stop shaming ourselves for being human. So pull up a chair, grab a coffee, and join us. Hi, welcome to the Trauma Tapes. This is track five from Darkness into Light. Hi. Hi, Mac. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. <laughs> Should we just get right into it? What do you Let's think? Let's get right into it. Yeah. Let's okay. read. Uh, actually, let me just really quickly. So the letter today um, touches on suicide. And so I just want to mention that at the get-go that that's what we're going to be talking about. Um, we always talk about hope when we talk about trauma. So we're going to focus on, on, on hope because there is a lot of hope here, but I wanted to just give two resources at the beginning. Um, the national suicide prevention lifeline is 800-273-8255. That's 800-273-TALK. They also have a chat um, function. So if you go to their website, either on your phone or your computer, any kind of device, you can chat that way. If calling feels too overwhelming And then um, for a list of other resources, you can go to speakingofsuicide.com slash resources. So we just wanted to start off with that. Okay. Okay. So this letter, the letter this week comes from Girl Reconnecting. And she starts and she says, Dear MC and Elizabeth, I hope this letter finds you well. I'm wondering if you might be interested in using music to spark conversation for one of your episodes. I wrote a song called Connection Lost shortly after the suicide of my partner. The song, through its music and lyrics, says so much about how this devastating loss affected me and in a much more fluid way than I can express in this letter. But here's the backstory to the song. In the months that followed my partner's suicide, I felt so numb, so disconnected, like someone had severed the link between my brain and my heart. I also felt incredibly alone, and I found on the few occasions that I spoke of my loss, people could not handle having a conversation about suicide. They would awkwardly look away or say, it wasn't your fault, then change the subject, or worse, say nothing at all, leaving us in deafening silence. In this latter case, I would go into fixer mode and shift us back to more comfortable ground regretting that spoken and exposed my and exposed someone else to my uncomfortable reality. Such experiences alienated me more, and I further disconnected to cope with that pain. The numbness was so pervasive that I wondered if I would ever have the capacity to feel again. Perhaps this was it. I would walk around in a heartless body for the rest of my life, mm-hmm. simulating the appropriate emotional responses to positive and negative events guided by prior learning rather than what I actually felt, nothing. When words failed, I turned to music because it could safely hold my contradictory thoughts and eloquently communicate my conflicting emotions. 
Further, there was no risk that a non-human form like music would judge me or be unable to handle my pain. I've never shared or played Connection Lost for an audience, but now in an effort to heal, I'm taking steps to re-enter the world. To be seen and heard are things I've become afraid of. So sharing my music, which essentially has been locked in a vault for the last eight years, takes courage. But I hope that in doing so, my music might connect with others struggling with trauma and that we can share, if only briefly, a mutual feeling of being heard and understood. Several years have passed since I wrote this song, and I no longer experience the same level of generalized numbness, though I still have times when I disconnect, not to mention a litany of other life-limiting behaviors. I recognize that suicide is a heavy subject. However, numbness and disconnection are universal responses to emotional pain and therefore things I imagine many of your listeners will relate to. If you choose to use any of the material I've sent, I hope you find it useful, find it a useful springboard for podcast friendly trauma discourse. And then she um, has a link to the lyrics and um, the song itself with thanks girl reconnecting. Oh, girl reconnecting. Thank you so much for writing about this. Um, this is something we don't talk about enough and it is really important. Um, 800,000 people die of suicide every year. And for every suicide that is, that happens that is completed, there are many other people who attempt suicide um, and do not succeed. Um, A prior suicide attempt is the single most important risk factor for suicide in the general population. So that number is also important. Um, Suicide is currently the third leading cause of death in 15 to 19 year olds. Wow. I know. Um, And so it is, it is a dark topic, but it's, it is one we, we cannot turn away from. Um, In fact, there was actually an article this morning in the New York Times um, called How to Help When Adolescents Have Suicidal Thoughts um, by Perry Class, MD. Uh, Just because I think this is such a heavy time and a time of of isolation, Um, this is increasing. And so the article was about how to talk to your kids about it. Um, So go check that out. Okay, so I want to read the lyrics and then we can jump into talking about this. And then at the end, when we're done um, talking, we're going to actually play her song at the end of the um, at the end of the episode. So thank you for sharing and letting us and and kind of honoring us with your story and letting us be um, people who see and hear you because we 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 are honored by that. You know, we are. She she is a beautiful writer, and yeah. I, I, I haven't heard the song, but I can imagine that it's also. Amazing. And um, bravo that you were able to find a way to express yourself yeah. in your pain. Mm-hmm. So that's amazing. And you should be very proud of yourself for that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I'll read the lyrics now. Um, it's called Connection Lost. Disparity between what is felt and would sh- what should feel. This tragedy has blocked off roads and nothing is real. Won't you try to connect the path from my brain to my body and heart? They all said life had stolen my response. Too much, now the neurons bypass. Anesthetized, a first-class loser's prize, heart paralyzed, bargained for numbness of pain. Why do we have to go on disconnected? Was it really planned out that way? 
Time has gone and all that's left has been rejected. What for? What for? What for? What for? Won't you try to connect the path from my brain to my body and heart? They all said life had stolen my response. Too much now the neurons bypass. Tried to operate, reopen the gate, but it wasn't enough. It was all to rebuff, to reside to my plight without putting up fight, not a choice to be made because memories can fade. We'll fight the curse with lyric and verse. Gives me the chills. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> it is beautiful. Um, we were just talking about how the one of the things that's so um, universal, because I think, you know, she's right that it is a universal, some of this is universal, even if you haven't experienced suicide um, close of, of someone close to you, that feeling of isolation after loss is, uh, I don't even know a word, shattering, staggering. It's kind of knocks you off your feet. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're, um, at those moments, you're so raw and vulnerable and Mm -hmm. blown wide open and, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, looking for connection more than you've ever needed it before. Yeah, you know, and to feel misunderstood or rejected or, or like not you have heard. To take care of someone else's yeah. pain, like yeah, that's um, that's tough. That's really mm-hmm. tough. I think that um, after suffering a loss like that you you just you, you're exposed in a different way than mm-hmm. than you ever have been before and it's um good can come out of that mm-hmm. place yeah and um and bad c- can come mm-hmm. also so it's um i understand her um disconnecting at that point yeah you know yeah the um we we just to share a little bit of our of our story um to kind of connect with you yeah um not saying that it's the same but just that we've felt that isolation too we we lost our parents in pretty quick succession and uh they were both very they were young and they were also healthy so it was kind of sudden in both cases and when our father died um people could kind of like attend to that they could they could be there and do their best and like say the right thing and, you know, and things like that. And then, you know, not that much longer later, it wasn't even two years. Right. 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 Um, when our mother died, people were horrified and you could see that on their faces. And I think part of it was that they didn't know what to say. Part of it was that a lot of them had promised us that since we had just lost our father, we couldn't lose our mother and that's not how it works. And so they were sort of, there was like embarrassment or something with that. And then the third thing was that I think that sometimes people are worried that tragedy is contagious. Yeah. And so there's this compulsion to like block, right? Like put your hands up or like, you know, what's going on there? Like, I don't want to catch that. You know, you see this with all sorts of tragedy. Like I think when, when a couple in a, in a group splits up, people like kind of be like, you know, they look at their own relationship and they're like, Oh God, is that contagious? You know? Yeah. It's fear you know, it's absolute bald faced fear. Yeah. 
which is understandable. Totally. Totally. Yeah. But I, I mean, I distinctly, you know, we grew up in a small town and, um, our parents had a medical practice so that, you know, there were, Mm -hmm. they had patients and, you know, people knew the family. And, um, I remember, I distinctly remember after mom died, people not being able to look me in the eye. Yeah. You could see it on their face. Like, yeah, you could see how uncomfortable they were. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I've always said there are no right words in that moment. Mm. There's nothing you can say that's going to make it better, right. <laughs> you know? So don't beat yourself up for not having the perfect words because right. there aren't any, right. you know? Right. Um, and your presence is so important. Exactly. It, just showing up and, and being there. And the things that I remember that people did in those moments is they talked about mom or dad. Yeah. And and that was so... Um you know, so special in that moment, how they, how they knew mom or dad or how they thought of them or how they remembered them. So, you know, not to get off, off the subject here and make it about us, but, but I understand that, um, how that isolation feels. And I had a colleague at work who had a very similar situation to us and, um, lost his father and then lost his mother soon afterwards. And he grew up in a small town outside Boston. And I said to him, wait, because people aren't even going to be able to look at you, you know? And he came into work and he's like, Lisa, you're right. Like it's happening. Like I I can tell that they're so uncomfortable. So. And you need the connection. So you go, so the letter writer talks about like going into fixer mode, like. Oh yeah. I remember a colleague at, at a place I was working at the time when dad died. Um, when, she hadn't, it was kind of a, a frantic, uh, not for, he died on Christmas day. And so the the communication had gotten lost and we were all back at work at the same time and she hadn't found out yet. So she came kind of bounding into my office and she was like, how's your dad? And I was like, oh shit. Like I have to tell like immediate, the heaviness of that. Like I have to tell this person who's asking so earnestly that he died. Like yeah, she was so shocked. She literally fell on the floor. Oh, and I was, it was just in, like, I, you know, I was on the floor picking her up and the whole thing. And then later you're like, you know, like I could have used a hug <laughs> not to shame her for her response because it was just pure, like shock, you know, of course, but, um, you go into fixer mode because I don't think that's a failing, you know what I mean? Like you go into fixer mode because you, you need connection. That's the primary need there. Yeah. But at the same time, I understand that that means you're not getting what you need necessarily, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think we were also talking about how suicide just has, you know, yeah, it is such a heavy topic and it is, you know, I think that fear that people have causes them to kind of um, rate death, you know, yes. or, and okay, cancer is different from Right. A car accident is different from right. a murder is different mm-hmm. from suicide. And, you know, they're all lost. Right. It's so to uh, try to apply, a, you know, a grade or, or a rating system to yeah. which is worse. Is, Hierarchy. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. Is um, makes it especially difficult mm-hmm. for, for our letter writer. And totally. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you went through that. I really am. I, I we get it. Yeah. We, we get those moments when you're looking so earnestly to connect and you're not getting it. Mm-hmm. Totally. 
And and the, and you need someone to look with you at this thing that just happened because part of the reason that we fumble in those moments is because we're trying to understand and make meaning out of something that feels really senseless. Right. And um, you need people to look with you instead of turn away and suicide feels too dark. And since we don't have a space to talk about it openly because we're scared of it, that that just further isolates people who are struggling with that. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So we're so sorry for your loss. Okay. Let's talk about numbness. Okay. So um, the, the numbness that's happening um, the, another word for it is dissociation or the dissociative response. Um, So let's talk about why it happens and what it is. And then we're going to pivot into what to replace it with and when to replace it. Um, So we've talked about the brain a little bit, I think, right? Today? No, just in general. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yes. 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 Speaking of the brain, the the part of the brain that I'm missing is the part that like remembers what I said in what context. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm like, did I say this 17 times or zero times? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, the, the general goal of the brain is to achieve homeostasis, which means equal blood flow and equal electrical activity across the cortex. Um, we'll come back to the structure of the brain in a minute. Um, it almost never gets there because it's always taking in information from inside the body and also from outside in the world. And one of the, the things that we've evolved to do is to detect threat. And of course, this is evolutionary because if we don't detect threat correctly, we will not survive. So there's a part of your brain called the amygdala, which is sort of nestled in the center of your brain that's responsible for detecting whether or not anything in your environment or internal to you is threatening your life. Um, And there are a set of responses that happen when that part of your brain detects threat. So it's sort of like a fire alarm that has three options fight, flight, or freeze. Um, And so when your brain detects threat, and by the way, overwhelm is perceived by that part of the brain as threat. So um, overwhelm in general, the, the kind of the inability to make sense of something, a tragedy like this would be perceived by that part of the brain as this is too much. We can't right now. And so- the freeze response um, clicks in to place and that disconnects us from what's going on, from what we're feeling, from our bodily perception, right? So proprioception is the ability to feel your own bodily sensations that disconnects. Um, So the dissociative response, like any response happens on a spectrum. It can be very, very extreme where to the point where you actually feel like you're floating outside of your body or it can happen in a very like kind of tiny little way where like you're looking around your room and things feel a little off, like perceptions, everything feels like a little unreal. Um, or you feel like your actions are a little bit, there's a word I'm looking for and I can't think of it. Um, like removed, like. Yeah. Detached. Yes. Detached. Exactly. Yeah. So like you're going through the motions, you're having a conversation, but you feel like you're like a little bit not in the moment, you know? Yeah. Um, and the dissociative response is a coping technique, right? It happens because the brain can't compute what's happening. 
And so it disconnects. Um, but when that becomes kind of the default mode that results in this general feeling of numbness, which makes you feel really strange and also like disconnected from the world that you're living in. Um, okay. So back to the brain for a second. So when we're talking about the brain, we're, we can talk about three things, the structure of the brain, like the actual parts of the brain, the physical part of it, the blood flow or the electrical activity. So we can talk about like all three, these three layers all affect what we feel in our body and the way that our thoughts are moving. Um, and your brain has limited capacity in terms of how much blood and how much energy it has. So threat causes the brain to actually, this is really cool. And this is why I always say that the trauma response is a strength response, not a sign of weakness or disorder. This is evolutionary and not disordered. It's the opposite. So threat causes your brain to reprioritize blood flow and energy. So when your brain detects threat, it sends resources to certain places in your brain. So you're more likely to survive. And that means energy and blood flow get reduced in other areas. So an example is that, um, you know, if you wake up in the middle of the night because you hear a loud noise, you are up and doing things before you're rationally thinking, right? The, you're, you're the, because the part of your brain that's responsible for executive function has just lost blood flow and energy because all the blood flow and energy is in the parts of your brain that are responsible for responding in that moment to the threat, getting you out. So you might find yourself, this is silly, but like you might find yourself like outside in your underwear and being like, why didn't I grab my PJs that were standing right next to the bed? right? It's because executive function is offline and that's inconvenient in the moment when you're standing outside in your underwear. But it's the reason that that happens is so that you're better, so that you're better prepared to survive that particular threat. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm thinking of this ridiculous story. Sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> when I was in college in Boston, my, the fire alarm would go off in the yeah. middle of the night and my roommate would... <laughs> I would get up and put on my clothes because we had to go out in the quad, you know, and she would just, <laughs> she would stand there and scream, <laughs> and scream, but do everything that I was doing. <laughs> so if I put on my sweatpants, she would go get her sweatpants, but she was screaming at the same time. <laughs> so, so I, I don't know, for some reason, like I was still in that executive function area and she was just doing what I was doing. So anyway, I'm sorry. That's what it made me think of. No, that's funny. So interestingly, you're not in executive function. You're in movement. Oh, okay. Your movement just aligns well with what's happening. You're like, get the hell out of dodge mode. But put your clothes on first. <laughs> put your clothes on first. Yeah. Okay. But, but she's right. in something different, right? She's closer to the freeze response. If you weren't there, she would just stand there and scream. Right. And just right. disconnect, right? She's frozen. That's interesting. Yep. Which is kind of, which is, and, so and I saved her. Yes. <laughs> Time and again, it sounds like <laughs> yeah. both from the embarrassment of having to leave without your PJs and also, um, from potential death. I assume these were like alarms and not actually fire. Oh yeah. They were, uh, they were ridiculous. It was always freezing. And, uh, you know, I went, we went to a women's college, so you'd see who had their boyfriend staying over because <laughs> they'd be outside of the quad too. <laughs> Can't hide that one. That's funny. Yep. Oh my goodness. Um, okay. So the reason, so all of that is to say that the reason that that is kicking into place is because you're overwhelmed. And so it's not a bad thing. 
Like we need to get away from this idea that like we talked about last week and we talked about coping mechanisms. Sometimes the solution is also the problem, right? Like that coping technique to freeze or to kick into high gear. That's essentially like the fight response when you're like, I'm going to put on my clothes. I'm going to run and do all this stuff and get out. Um, you're going to fight the threat instead of kind of collapse to it. But all of these are natural circuits in the brain that just get like tripped on. Yeah. So the alarm gets, gets set off and then boom, you're into this response. And the response is designed to keep you alive. And it's also something you can learn to reach for with a little bit more control, which we'll come back to. Because the idea that like you would never have this happen is not realistic. You can't get rid of these responses. Yeah. And you wouldn't want to because they're there for your safety. You know what I mean? Let me ask you this. When this numbness, like I, I think of um, after dad died that, you know, there was that, what I described as that period of being like broken wide open, yeah. completely vulnerable. Yeah. I've always thought of it as like being on a different wavelength or vibration. Yeah. Like, you know, when a, um, an old fashioned camera, like when the, with the aperture, mm-hmm. when it would click into the right place and you get into focus, like I, that was that yeah. hyper-focused clarity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which I kind of long for Yeah, sometimes now. And then the numbness came after that mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. And I would say I was in that numbness for years. Oh yeah. But like- barely conscious. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, doing all the right things, like moving right. through life and, mm-hmm. and going to work and paying the bills and doing the things I needed to do. Um, but now when I look back on it, I think of it as healing. Yeah. Is that, do you think that's no wrong to feel that way? I think of that numbness as like kind of gathering my strength yep. to be out in the world again. Totally. That makes sense. 100%. I don't think of it it, as a bad thing. No, it is healing and it's necessary. And I think you have to trust your brain that it's doing that for a reason. Yeah. And you can gently like ask it at some point, which I want to talk about in a second. Like, could we connect? Could we maybe connect a little bit and see if that, but yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this is is kind of um, what happened is terrible and tragic and hard to understand. And so your, your brain and body with great grace and sophistication and mercy sort of take you out of the game for a little while. And it's That's like a beautiful, right? If you think about that, it yeah. is. I, I have a lot of respect for that. Yeah. It's like a parenting in a way, like your brain and body are like kind of parenting you in a way. Yeah. Because I think that that, that clarity, I know exactly what you're talking about. I felt like the world, like the seas parted and it was like, there's stuff over here and there's stuff over here and there's all this clarity and it's, but like, that's unsustainable too. (laughs) That's overwhelming. That amount of clarity is like when you have, um, I'm like nearly legally blind. (laughs) So I've had the experience many times in my life where I get my prescription, my eyeglass prescription, like up to whatever. And all of a sudden I can see every single leaf on every single tree. And it's like the world is there's so much awe, you know, like just in the basic every day and it's exhausting. And after two hours of wearing the new glasses, I have a headache and I have to go back to the old ones. And then you kind of like go up and up until you can wear them every day because it's no longer overwhelming. And someone was just talking about this and I can't remember it, but the sort of like the spiritual bump of that, that clarity is exhausting and unsustainable, even though it's good, you know? Yeah. 
It's, it, it, it is. It's a very special place, but uh, yeah, it is exhausting. You're right. Yeah. Emerson says we court tragedy. Like we try to pull it close to us because we think it's going to give us this little fragment of reality. And I think it does, right. It gives us that fragment of clarity that we don't usually have. Um, but it's a sharp fragment, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a very high price to pay for that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, but right. yeah. The, um, but the numbness was, was um, life-saving yeah. for me. Mm-hmm. And it's, I, 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 I used to say this like with great glee. And then someone was like, you sound like a maniac, <laughs> but I would say that, which I totally didn't mean to, um, that like, you don't have to go powering through your grief or your trauma because it's going to wait for you. Oh yeah. And I, like, I don't mean that to sound like ominous and bad, but that I like it releases as you are ready to deal with it. And I think that that's largely natural. Right. You know, like you, you have to trust the process. Right. Yeah. And you encounter these moments where it knocks you over and you're thinking like, oh my God, it's been, you know, 10 years. What the hell? But it's like, well, this piece wasn't ready. You weren't ready for this piece until 10 years out. Right. And now it's here. So like, could you, instead of like judging yourself and being like, why the hell am I feeling a thing? You know, could you just like, look at it with a little more grace, you know? Yeah. Welcome it. Right. Sit in it for a minute. Right. Right. It's not going to drown you because it can't, because your body is not going to let that happen. Right. Because it's going to, it's going to do what it needs to do when you're too overwhelmed, which might be to numb and disconnect. Right. And I also want to say that like that feeling is, I don't want to like sugarcoat it. It's also terrible. You know, like it can, the knowledge that you're disconnected is, uh, can feel really terrible. Yeah. Yeah. It can be very lonely and there's different Mm -hmm. levels of numbness also. Yep. Oh yeah, totally. Yep. So. Okay. So we talked about the three responses, fight, flight, freeze. There's actually a fourth, lots of F words here, (laughs) which is future. Oh, so um, we need to talk about hope, not because we're trying to put a silver lining on a pile of shit, but because it is just there. It is there. Hope and trauma are entangled um, just by nature. Um, There's a quote by John Berger. Hope is not a form of guarantee. It's a form of energy. And very frequently that energy is strongest in circumstances that are very dark. Um. Okay, so really quickly, um, Martin Seligman in the 60s, he's the father of um, positive psychology. Mm -hmm. Um, He did some research in the 1960s about helplessness. And they developed this term called learned helplessness, which is the when you feel helpless in one situation, this tends to create feelings of helplessness in other situations. So helplessness can be learned and it sticks. It seems to stick. So if you believe you can't control the outcome of a situation, this then leads to like an inability to act at all, which can then tip into like complete passivity and depression because you just feel helpless all over your life. So then your future starts to be impossible or feel impossible. And then 50 years later, they were like, wait a second, 
this isn't actually learned. It's evolutionary and it's automatic. So you shut down to protect yourself because the part of your brain that's, that's recognizing threat is not super sophisticated. It's the part of the brain that we evolutionarily share with like lizards, right? So it's not like a deep thinking, philosophical, discerning part of your brain. And so it recognizes threat. And then when the threat is becomes chronic, it just completely like shuts down because it's like, well, you're in danger all the time. And so let's just kind of tamp everything down so that you're less vulnerable. Um, so basically everything that we've just been talking about, our ability to kind of notice and expect that we do have control over things in the future will show our brains that we've been tricked by the alarm system. Ah, okay. So we're not actually in danger and can relax. The only kind of like metaphor that I can think of to, to make sense of this is like, I always talk about how if you have a fire alarm that's like too close to the kitchen and every time you cook bacon, it goes off, you gradually probably naturally have like the response of your, your response to the alarm gets less mm -hmm. because you're like, oh, it's just bacon. And then you turn it off and it's not a big deal. Right. You responded every time with that extreme, like stand in the middle of the room and scream like your college roommate <laughs> or run out of the house in your underwear or whatever, that would be, you know, a problem. But the solution is not to get rid of the fire alarm. You need that. It's dangerous yeah. to live in a house that doesn't have a fire alarm. The solution is to adapt to it. So how can you make sure that that circuit is not getting tricked? So you move it away from the kitchen so that it doesn't, or you take it down when you're cooking bacon, you put it back up when you're done, you know? Does that make sense? You're making fun? Yeah. Okay. No, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> um, so the circuit in the brain that's responsible for future planning has been named the hope circuit. Oh. And it's the part of the brain that's responsible for looking into the future and anticipating like with, with some positive emotion and also a little bit of negative emotion because there's uncertainty there, um, something different than what you currently have. So um, because the brain has limited capacity in terms of how much energy, only like certain, you can't have all circuits firing all at the same time, right? Think of like an, I don't know anything about this, but think about like in your house, if you turned on every single thing at the same time, yeah, fuses would blow, right? Right. Because You can't have the blow dryer and the air conditioner going at the same time. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Totally. Um, and so you, you have to like reprioritize. And so in the example of a house, like usually like a, a cold thing that takes up a lot of energy and a hot thing that takes up a lot of energy can't be on at the same time. So you go and you turn off the air conditioner, you blow dry your hair, then you turn back the air conditioner on when you're done with the blow dryer. Yeah. Your brain's doing the same thing naturally. Um, and certain brain circuits can't fire up at the same time. So this is why we always talk about tiny little joys, because when you're connecting with creativity and joy that that part of your brain, that circuit can't fire at the same time as panic, dread, and disconnection. Like okay. they are counter, they can't do that. The helpless and frozen circuit, the alarm circuit that we've been talking about, can't fire at the same time as the hope circuit. Okay. So if you can spend some time focusing on the future instead of focusing on the past, which is very hard when you're dealing with a big tragedy like this, you can um, 
basically like manipulate your brain back into understanding that it doesn't need to be disconnected all the time. Because your brain has tricked you that the tragedy means that you have to be disconnected all the time. And that's the alarm misfiring when you're cooking bacon. And so when you're connecting to the hope circuit, that's you adapting to the alarm and being like, no, actually, there's not a fire right now. I'm just making bacon and I'm going to put this back up or whatever, you know, the thing falls apart. But yeah, no, no. And the bacon's going to be delicious and I'm going to enjoy it. Right. Yeah. That's so right. So the, the kind of the, I feel like the sort of implicit question is like, what do we do about this numbness when we find ourselves here? And the answer is you look to the future and if there's nothing there, but darkness, that's okay. You can put something there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Um, and it can be very, very tiny. Um, it involves hope involves the belief that you have some measure of control over the future. Hopelessness is the total opposite of that. The kind of hopelessness and depression that lead to suicidal thoughts are, are beliefs rooted in this idea that you have no control. You don't have a say there is no meaning. So when you're connecting to hope, you're doing the opposite. You're teaching your brain that it's safe and that there is a future that is worth inhabiting. Yeah. And So again, this can be really tiny. Like you can, you can be like tomorrow I'm going to take a walk around the block and I'm going to go look at those daisies in my neighbor's um, flower pots. That can be the thing. Yeah. One tiny little anchor into the future. Yeah. Um, And then you can expand it. Right. And you can make it a little bit more empowering. I'm going to make this beautiful meal for myself tomorrow, or I'm going to learn how to do this. Um, this random task. And then like, just pause for a second. We we all make fun of our, each other for like the silly, like, um, uh, pandemic, uh, like little hobbies that we're coming up with. We are naturally reaching for hope. We are connecting to the hope circuit when we feel like the future is more uncertain than it ever has been and bleaker than it ever has been. How cool is that? That's great. Like we're doing it anyway. Right. That's our natural coping yes. mechanism. That's right. why we're drawn to these things right now. Right. So just turn, could you turn that channel up a little bit and focus a little bit more on that? Yeah. And in empowerment. I think um, in my own journey, talking about myself a lot, I'm sorry, but um, mm-hmm. when, I, when I was in that really numb place, one of the things that helped me is I had a friend at that time who was very positive. Mm-hmm. And just her energy was always, yeah. I just liked being around her. It yeah. was just, there was something about her yep. energy that was um, positive yep. and life-giving and wasn't um, mirroring my yes. alarm system. Yep. So just being around her, you know, in small doses or whatever I could do. Yep. I, I trusted that when I was spending time with her, it was going to be an experience that would bring some joy is a strong word in those moments, but peace. No, joy, I think is the right word though. Some, Lack of numbness. Some, yeah. Some connection. Right. Humor, whatever. Right. Fun. Right. Right. Totally. The, um, um, oh crap. What was I just going to say? Oh, that's co-regulation. Right. So like in, in our self-help journeys, we need to be really careful not to try to do it all ourselves. Cause we like buy all these little books and try right. to, and I do this too. Right. So I'm not like making fun of anybody, but we buy all these books and we're like, okay, if I can just like get into my head deep enough and figure it all out, then I'll be good. It's like, 
no, no, no. Sometimes we need a literal other brain because exactly. if your brain is stuck in the threat mode and you're, st- this is, think about like when you're in a plane, right? What do they tell you to do when there's crazy turbulence? Look at the flight attendant. Mm-hmm. If the flight attendant is not scared, then you know that you're good, right? Right. right. That's co-regulation. Your, your, um, any therapeutic interaction is based in co-regulation. You're literally like on a neurobiological level, leaning on someone else's brain power to do what your brain can't do. Yeah. Yeah. And because that time can be so, um, isolating it, you know, it, it it was good for me to get out of my head and you use her energy for lack of a better word, kind of plug into her, right. Whatever she had going on. Right. That's therapeutic. That's, that's super important. hundred percent. Um, I was just going to say something else about that co-regulation. Mm-hmm. We need to not be so judgmental about these things, right? Yeah. Like, because we'll say, and I've heard a lot of clients do this when they're dealing with like, especially grief. They're like, you know, I, I, and I think there's two pieces of this. They they'll go out and they'll have some like fun or they'll connect with someone and they'll find themselves laughing and then they feel terrible about it and they feel mm-hmm. guilty. And I think part of the guilt is that you're afraid that moving on means you're leaving the other person behind. And it's actually not true, but, but we feel like that. That's natural. Um, but the other piece is that we feel like healing has to be serious. Yeah. And grieving has to be serious. And it's, it's not. I think that's one of the reasons why we think there's only darkness here. There's not. Right. You know? Right. Right. Cause be, grieving can be remembering the person, mm-hmm. or, you know, the loss and, um, laughing at, right. at a silly memory mm-hmm. that's grieving, but it's, mm-hmm. it's a different way to grieve. Totally. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's important to have all the things, mm-hmm. which I want to come back to in a second when we talk about like disconnecting, I want to come back to this, but just a couple other things like how to reconnect to hope. Um, and also like whenever I talk to people about this, there's, there's, I've had people fire me <laughs> because oh. they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Hope, joy, come on, you're full of shit, you know? <laughs> and it's like, I get that. That's resistance. Resistance is always interesting to look at and be curious about. Um, but if you're feeling that much resistance to this idea, that's relevant. Try to just put it on the shelf for like 15 minutes right? and see. And again, like this is this is all based in brain science. This is not like wacky stuff. That's not, uh, that doesn't have any corollary to the brain. You know, this is um, literally turning off the blow dryer or turning off the air exactly. conditioner to blow dry your hair. Right. All you're doing is blow drying your hair. Right. Not a big deal. You could turn the air conditioner back on when you're done. Right. Right. <laughs> and looking at it that way, like is actually a really, so trauma sensitive yoga is a modality that was, uh, that Bessel van der Kolk put together with David Emerson, who's a yoga instructor. And they, the, the philosophy behind it is really fascinating because it's all based in empowerment and invitation. So instead of being in a yoga room where someone is demanding something of you, all of the language in trauma sensitive yoga is invitational. Could you do this? If you feel okay doing this, could you close your eyes instead of close your eyes? If you're not closing your eyes, you're not doing the yoga thing, you know, like, right. And it's also based in, um, one of the other kind of main tenets is about, you can do whatever you want in that room. You can do whatever you want. And in the studies they were doing, they were allowing people to get up and change the, um, the temperature in the room. You could change the thermostat. 
And the idea, the only kind of rule was that you had to sort of imprint to yourself, like I am too warm and I'm changing the thermostat. And what you're doing in that instance is giving yourself the experience of empowerment. You can take action. And that's obviously really small, right? Like you're changing the thermostat or you're lying on the floor instead of doing the yoga pose. But every time you do that, you're teaching your brain and body that you have more of a say than you think you do. And you don't need to be tricked into staying disconnected all the time. You know, it's in your control. Yeah. Right. Lots of things are in your control. Um, Right. Even though it feels like it isn't. The other couple of things that you can do are just to notice, notice things that are not dark, right? Notice beauty, notice the light. And I mean that like literally, like notice the way the light is in your house. Notice the light in the morning versus the afternoon. Plug into that. Noticing other things outside of yourself will also help you feel like the future is a thing that exists. Um, Another thing, make big, ridiculous plans that are not going to happen. And I know that that sounds crazy, but what you're doing is you're also connecting to the part of your brain that's responsible for imagination. And that is something that we, we tend to think of as silly and childlike and unimportant, and it's critical in healing because it's the same part of the brain that's responsible for connection. So if you're living in a pandemic, just for example, and you can't do a lot of this connecting to other people, one of the things you can do is is kind of work that same part of your brain, turn on that circuit by using imagination. And so I'll give people like the exercise of taking 15 minutes a day. This is my favorite thing to do when people are feeling really hopeless and they're always like, what? But (laughs) take 15 (laughs) minutes a day and dream a ridiculous life for yourself. And make it as detailed as you possibly can. Like the more detailed, the better. And then imagine yourself living that life, even though you know it's not possible. Because so much of the time we get we get stuck in this loop of like, well, that's not practical and that wouldn't make sense. And so I can't think about it. And you're truncating your connection to that circuit in your brain. You need to turn that on. Okay. So imagine you're like, be like, I'm going to be a tight walk, tightrope walker in New York City. Like that guy in that documentary that time. Yeah. And I'm going to wear the following shoes when I'm a tightrope walker. You know what I mean? Like make it that specific. Did we talk about this last time? No. Okay. Um, And then the next day, give yourself a different task. Give yourself a different life. I'm going to live. It is fun. Yeah. I'm going to live in Paris and this is what my apartment's going to look like. And these are the clothes I'm going to wear. And yeah, this is what I'm going to eat. And this is, yeah. Yes. Yes. That's fun. Well, I love that. It's super fun. And it it counters all these things. Like when we feel like the future is impossible, our brain is primed to find out exactly how it's impossible. And so when we dream in things that are not as ridiculous, we will throw out like uh, barriers to that. So we'll be like, okay, well, you know, I'd like to have a career in um, the arts. Well, I'm too old for that. I didn't go to school for that. Blah, blah, blah. And then and then you're back, boom, into the darkness and into right. the past and into the, you're not future focused anymore. And so breaking out of that can involve being like, okay, I know this is impossible. I'm going to dream it anyway. Yeah. It's, it's huge. And then you also notice trends in that that are really relevant. Right. So you'll notice like that in your Paris dream and in your tightrope walker dream and in your fisherman dream, you're wearing the same shoes exactly that you've never worn before. And it's like, wait a second, like there's something I want that I didn't think about because I didn't, you know, right. I was so deep in the dark. And I could have those shoes. Right. 
I could do that. Right. That's or all of my right. fake uh, jobs are in the same vein that is totally accessible to me, that career path. I just never have thought of it or let it in. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Oh, I love that. I know. It's super, it's super fun. You should see how mad people get sometimes. <laughs> yeah. It's hard. It's hard it to hear hard. those moments. And I, I can definitely imagine them like, yeah, right. Go to hell. I right. get that. Totally. Yeah. It's funny. But banish that judgment, banish the resistance. And like, you don't have to get rid of it entirely. Like just kind of like literally imagine yourself like putting it on a high shelf. Okay, resistance, I hear you. I'm going to put you over here. And now imagine this. Well, how about like treat it like an exercise program? Like no one thinks that like lifting weights is a good idea. Like, you know, no one says like, woohoo, I'm going to lift this dumbbell. Just do it because you know you should do it in order to make the muscle bigger if that's what you want. That's exactly what you're doing in your brain. It's you're exercising that circuit. Right. And the more you do that, the more, the easier it is for your brain to go there and turn that on. And then it becomes your default. So you switch from the threat numbness default to the hope default. Yep. And that changes your whole life. I love that. That's fascinating. I know it's crazy. Um, okay. Three other really quick things. Cultivate self-compassion. This is super important. It's another thing people get really mad about. The more I'm getting into this stuff, the more I'm learning that if we don't have self-compassion, we plateau. We talked about this last time. We need to cultivate self-compassion. We need to connect with that and not to judge ourselves so deeply, especially for like our progress as we are grieving, you know? Yeah. And this goes to this, this other thing. We cannot throw out coping mechanisms. I said this before. It's okay to disconnect sometimes. The point that you want to get to is that you you disconnect in two places. One, when you're completely overwhelmed and you don't have control over it because that means your evolutionary biology is working correctly. Two, when you choose it. Because it's a tool. Disconnection is a tool. Numbing is a tool. And sometimes when you're super overwhelmed, you reach for that tool and like taking that away from yourself is cruel and unnecessary and impossible, you know? Right. Right. You don't have to do that. I think just being aware that you're doing it. Right. And, and because you're choosing it and then you can also then put it down and reconnect. Exactly. But, but letting yourself do it, it's not inherently bad to disconnect. It's really important. Right. People, I see this all the time. We've talked about this before too, but like people are like, if I'm doing this work, then I cannot ever relax. Like that's not going back to the example of like muscle building. If you were like, okay, I want to, I want to be able to bench press 200 pounds. So I'm just going to work out 24 seven. You're going to have two days of workout and then you're going to die. Right. (laughs) Right. You need to rest. And part of that involves doing things that are counter to lifting weights, like lying down. Like that's right. It's all part of the same process. You know what I mean? Right. And these things are not like races that need to be won. Like they're not, it's, it's a lifetime experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, if I do X, Y, and Z, you know, this will happen. Right. Okay. That might happen, but you know, this is a journey. This is, You need to be able to to pull on these things when you need them and put yeah. them down when you don't need them. Yeah. Yeah, there's this this philosopher was talking about whether or not to believe in God, which we don't need to talk about at the moment, but he has this one sentence and this like rings around in my head like every, I was just thinking about this the other day. We are embarked. Right? Like I always try to start there. Yeah. Like 
the thing happened. We're on yeah. the journey. Yeah. And it's like, I imagine myself in the boat. That's just like, out, we're, out, we're out to sea. Like you could talk about how you don't want to be, but <laughs> right. it doesn't change you're the talking, fact. You could reminisce about the shore, but right. it doesn't change the fact that you're in the middle. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And in fact, it might like be harmful for you because you're then you're, pa- you're focusing too much on the past instead of focusing on the future, which is going to be a problem. We are embarked. I we like are that. embarked. I like that. And his argument then is like, we're embarked. You have to decide whether you believe in God or not. Like you were already, you're, you, you woke up in the game. Here you are, you know? Right. Which I sort of, I just kind of love that. Um, okay. Two other things. Um, finding meaning and purpose. These are big, scary words, but they don't need to be. Um, finding some kind of sense of meaning and connection in your own life and purpose in your own life will combat the numbness. And the meaning doesn't have to be like, I'm going to quit everything and start a nonprofit and help all of the hungry children, right? It can be that you find meaning in connecting with a group of people who also love like, um, I don't know, true crime (laughs) (laughs) or trauma or talking about psychology. Like it doesn't have to be this huge thing. Um, And then one of the other things that, that, they notice kind of accidentally is that being kind to other people mm-hmm. is really helpful for uh, if you're feeling really dark and hopeless about your own future. And I think like when, when we are carrying around something big and isolating like tragedy and loss, we focus on what other people do or fail to do for us. And that's a thing. Like people say the wrong thing. They do the wrong thing. It's disappointing, but we have a choice about what we focus on. And if we focus on doing kind things for other people, that actually strengthens connection, even if it's tiny incidental things versus focusing on the disconnection of this person didn't do this. And I thought they would, right. Which is a real thing. I'm not trying to minimize that, but um, they found that being kind to other people, um, it improves your experience. It improves your inflammation in your body. And also anyone who sees you, it also improves their experience, which is kind of fascinating too. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I think that's my advice, which is, I mean, how do I summarize that? <laughs> um, be kind to yourself. Try to connect to the hope circuit knowing that it's there is helpful. Um, notice beauty, try to focus on the future, even if it's in tiny little ways, dream about ridiculous futures. If you can't see your own, um, and live your way into them a little bit, um, cultivate self-compassion, be kind to others and find little outlets in your life for meaning and purpose. And also remember that it's okay to disconnect. Sometimes it's okay to be numb sometimes. Yes. I love the being kind to others. I think that's, and that can be the littlest smiling at the person oh, that yeah. you, when we don't have masks anymore, but yep. wait, you can wave, you can give a little wave Yep. and nine times out of 10, you'll get it back. Yep. A hundred percent. And if not, then you're going to, if there's four other people and they see this interaction, they actually get the same, like it changes their heart rate. Wow. That's how like it's, it is a real impact when you're nice to other people holding a door, you know helping someone with their groceries. We're so, we're doing the opposite right now in all these funny little ways, turning our backs and it's, um, yeah, I get it, but it's scary. 
But that those things can mean more now than ever yeah. before because right. of that. Right. 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 You know. Yeah. And also just like one like last thing yeah. that you um when people say the wrong thing or they don't show up or they're not there, it's it's out of fear. It's not that they're mm-hmm. bad people. Mm-hmm. It's not that they're dumb. It's not that they're, you yeah. know, it's it's really tempting to get angry. Yeah. And I know I did it. And now years later, it's just, it's out of fear. And, right. and that's understandable. Right. And listen, like get angry. Like it's disappointing, oh, yeah. especially when people like are super close to you and you expect them to show up and they fail, like get angry, but don't stay there. Don't move into the anger. Right. You know? Right. But yeah, I mean, I think you're totally right. It, it comes to... um crippling fear. Like, yeah. I don't know what to say, so I can't say anything, you know? Right. Which then turns into regret and like, yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, have, have some compassion for those people there. Mm-hmm. You want them to understand, but you don't want them to go through what you've been through either, you know, right. in order to understand. So it's, Mm-hmm. And that's easy for me to say that now. I did not feel that way for a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had a list, <laughs> yeah, right. of who didn't, you know, react the way I thought they should. But right. it, that's that's no way to live. It wasn't for me. It's not for me. They're showing their capacity, you know. Yeah. And so sometimes readjusting your expectation is the way to continue to have a relationship with that person that's less painful. Right. You know. Right. But yeah. I think that's all, but also thank you again for writing in because this is really important. And just again, like, you know, we've been talking about dark things. If this has made you feel nervous or dark in your own head, um, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline phone number is 800-273-8255. That's 800-273-TALK. And then there's also, you can look at speakingofsuicide.com slash resources can give you um, some immediate help. Um, you're not alone. There's people out there who can help. Yes. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for sharing your, your music. Yes. Which we will, we will play in a minute, but first let's do the tiny little joys. Okay. My tiny little joy. I'm just going to jump right in because it's related to something that you talked about earlier. (laughs) And actually I think I can um, thank you for this because, um, you know, pandemic baking is a thing in this house now. Yep. And um, <laughs> I was a little late to this call because I had to make a batch of cookies and put them in the fridge. So after the call, I could roll out the cookies and make them because I need to have baked goods in the house all the time. Which um, just FYI, she did not tell me I, until now. <laughs> <laughs> I lied about it earlier. <laughs> But that's the real reason, because <laughs> I had to get my cookies lined up. <laughs> As if I wouldn't understand. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but uh, because I've been baking so much, uh, my husband actually said to me pretty recently, you know, I never thought I was going to get cookies, like, you know, but <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very pleased with this. <laughs> I didn't think that you that you were that kind of person. And I'm like, I wasn't. <laughs> Oh, I love but that. Oh I God. have um 
<laughs> I have made a baking cabinet in my kitchen and I bought the the containers and I labeled them because oh that's a whole God. other organizational like <laughs> thing that I love to do that makes me very happy. But this baking cabinet, every time I open it and see all my supplies ready to go, it brings me great joy. And the fact that there's always fresh baked goods in the house is um, that's my my pandemic um, habit that I've formed that's um that's brings me hope and joy so and that's and that's the thing like so you may have this experience where like you're feeling dark about like I I, I there I can't make any plans I don't know what's happening and then you're like I'm gonna make some cookies tomorrow exactly which ones am I gonna make the almond ones or the you know right the molasses which kind did you make molasses those oh those are, are ridiculous they're so good I know also like molasses is so good for you that those are health food like <laughs> You know, that's funny you say that because I was like mixing the molasses. I'm like, I never really used molasses until right now till with this cookie recipe. So now I'm going to have to keep it in the house all the time. Right. And like, I've just, I've never given molasses that much thought. And, and there was a are. big like molasses tragedy in Boston. Like I have to look, there was a the molasses, molasses like disaster. Massacre, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which not to make this dark, but. No, I tried to make that a phrase for a little while because I never understood why it wasn't. I didn't learn about that until I lived in Boston as a grad student. Because it's bizarre. The great molasses disaster. There were these huge, um, like, think about, what do you call those things? Huge, like, water towers. Yeah, but filled with molasses. And they burst open and burning molasses spilled out into the street. It's not funny, but it makes me laugh because I think of it going, moving slow because molasses is so pleasant. And, like, horses drowned and people died and it was the great molasses disaster. And I never understood why that didn't become like a phrase, like this is a molasses disaster. You know what I mean? Because it's like so unbelievable. <laughs> it's so weird. You know? Because so if you lived in California and you never were in Boston, like you would you'd be like, what? <laughs> I didn't. I grew up in Massachusetts and never knew that until I was. <laughs> right. Right. So, so anyway, sorry, my baking cabinet and my cookies, the cookie recipes that you gave me are my tiny little joy that just keep bringing me joy. And Brent saying, I didn't think I was going to get cookies. Like I can picture this. <laughs> I didn't think you were a cookie kind of girl. What a bonus. I guess you are. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> the pandemic is, is changing. It's changing. Yep. Um, I love that. Okay. Mine is really tiny. I was, I was out this morning and walking and there's this little school around the corner and um, they're having, you know, preschool because their kids don't catch coronavirus and also they need socialization and whatever. So these little kids, they're probably like four are all in the schoolyard when I was walking back and they are, they don't have masks. So you can see their faces and it's like, they're playing. And this little kid had this hat on that had, it was a cookie monster hat and it had like googly eyes. (laughs) Fun. And he was like running around and laughing hysterically with his friend, which made me laugh because the googly eyes and the cookie monster thing. And I was just like, oh, that little fragment of like normal life. Yeah. Like being a little kid, playing with your friends, running around like a maniac, you know, like it was just, it was so like pure. And I was just like, oh, that's so like, that's, you know, there's a lot that's going wrong, but there's there's still little tiny things that are good and normal, you know? Yeah. I love that. I can picture that. It was so funny. (laughs) 
And just like the, it was overwhelming in a way to like see their, all their faces. Like, I know it was such a, like, um, such a positive, we, you know, it's been a long time. It has been a long time that we haven't been able to see people's expressions, you know? Right. Right. So Yeah. Fun. Yeah. It was cute. It was cute. Okay. So, and again, just to reiterate this for the 900th time, when we do the tiny little joy thing, we're connecting with, we're, we're turning that circuit on in the brain. You're connecting with the part of the brain that's responsible for creativity, joy, and connection. And if you do that every day, you'll start noticing it even more Then it becomes a habit. Love that. Okay. So we're going to play, we're going to end by playing um, the letter writer's song. Um, and we will, if it's, I'm going to check with her and see if it's okay to link to this somewhere. Um, we are working on creating a website. Oops. Um, so we're going to link, we're going to do stuff at some point, linking things. Okay. Like cookie recipes, <laughs> cookie recipes, tiny little joys, links that we have, um, stuff we talk about resources, all sorts of stuff. Okay. Perfect. Um, yeah. But thanks for listening and, um, follow us, subscribe, leave a review. That's super helpful, um, to help us keep going and tell your friends. Okay. So this thanks is for the letters too. The yes. letters have been great. Oh yes, absolutely. And, um, they've been awesome. Keep writing in, um, write us at the trauma tapes at gmail.com. You can also send in a voice memo. If you don't want to write your whole story down, we won't play it unless you say it's okay. We can, we'll transcribe it and, and read it on, on here. Okay. So this is connection lost. All right. And thank you letter writer for sharing your art with us. Are you ready? Yep.